Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the Business of Food Travel podcast with your host, Eric Wolf. In the next 30 minutes, we will help you to become a better industry professional with inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in our food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, you will meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. You will hear about the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and be inspired with ideas for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. Welcome. I'm Eric Wolf, and I'll be your host today for episode 45 of Eat Well, Travel Better, the Business of Food Travel podcast. And joining us today is Ashi Vale, co-founder of Traveling Spoon. Ashi Vale is the co-founder and co-CEO of Traveling Spoon, a company that is changing the future of travel by creating meaningful travel experiences. An industrial designer and patent holder with a deep passion for problem solving, Ashi has designed several award-winning consumer and medical products while working at design consulting firms for over a decade. She is a magna cum laude graduate of the Savannah College of Art and Design and received her MBA from the University of California, Berkeley. Ashi is also on the board of directors at the World Food Travel Association. Welcome, Ashi. Hi, Eric. It's great to be here, being one of the people interviewed this time. It's so strange because normally in the past 44 episodes, you've been my co-host and this is going to become the Eric show. And I don't know, I, I don't know if I can do it without you, Ashi. I'm going to miss oh, you. Oh, I'm going to miss you too, but you're going to be amazing. I know it. <laughs> well, I am really looking forward to uh, seeing the next chapter of your life. But before we let you go, I would love to share with some of our listeners uh, some of the secrets that you've learned in your career over over time. So tell us about your Eureka moment. How did you come up with the idea for Traveling Spoon? I think maybe I will take you back a little bit just to give you a sense for my background and where I come from and how this Eureka moment came along. I grew up in South India in Chennai and much to my parents' disappointment, uh, they wanted me to pursue engineering or medicine or even business at the time. And I won a scholarship to study industrial design, which to me was the quintessential blend of art and science. But to them was like, what is this new thing that makes no sense whatsoever? As and, parents do, they never yes, understand of course. what their kids do. Right? <laughs> they still don't, I think. Um, and so I studied at the Savannah College of Art and Design, graduated uh, first in my class in industrial design, and then worked as an industrial designer for a decade on uh, the East Coast, designing medical and consumer products. So everything from a liquid oxygen generator for which I own a patent to the very first hydroelectric uh, shower light. And it was really exciting. I loved what I did. I worked with a fantastic team of people. We were really creating life-changing devices. But I will say growing up, food has always been a passion of mine. I think it's because my parents are from different parts of the country. And so growing up and having dinners at home. So dinner was something we always ate together. And we would always have so many dishes at the table. And it was just one of my most favorite memories of home and family. And I also had this renewed love for food after I went to boarding school for a while and then came back home and was like, oh, this is what I've been missing. (laughs) And so I've just always been passionate about food and travel and went to business school to start a company in the food space. 
And right before going to business school, so this was the spring of 2011, I was in Playa del Carmen in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. And whenever I travel, I love to try the local and authentic food. Don't get me wrong, I love to eat at a lovely, fancy restaurant. But uh, for me, it's really important to try the local food to really get a sense for, you know, what's yeah. available and what's there. And I just the restaurants that I ate at that came highly recommended were beautiful restaurants, but the food itself seemed to cater to a Western palate. And I couldn't for the life of me find authentic Mexican food. I knew Mexico had phenomenal food, but I just couldn't find authentic food. The restaurants I ate at were, you know, touristy and crowded. And I remember still just one day when I was walking to yet another restaurant and I was on the street and I happened to pass by this woman's home and I just looked through the window and I saw her cooking. And that for me was my eureka moment when I said, this is what I want. I want to eat with her. I want to hear her stories. And, you know, that's when the light bulb went off for me. A few months later, I met Steph Lawrence, my co-founder, while we were at business school, again, over a barbecue and or some other meal. And she and I just really bonded over our shared love for food and travel. And as we were talking, we realized that both of us really cared about exploring the space, you know, to give people a chance to have really authentic food when they travel. On her bucket list of things to do when she was living in China was to learn how to make dumplings from a Chinese grandmother. And she couldn't find that. And so we still laugh about this now. But, you know, I said that I wanted to start traveling spoon because Rather, she said she wanted to learn how to cook with people in their homes. And I just wanted to eat in people's homes. So we decided to work on it together. And here we are. It's been a decade. And we have hosts in 200 cities and 65 countries around the world who are incredible cultural and culinary ambassadors of their region. So Traveling Spoon is this online marketplace that connects travelers with private and authentic food experiences from homemade meals to cooking classes in people's homes around the world. And our goal really was to give people a connection to the local culture through food. For me, the power of travel, which is what we're doing at the World Food Travel Association is that idea of gastro diplomacy, right? It's to give people a chance to really understand each other so that we can realize at the end of the day that we're all humans, we all share the same values. And that's what travel does. It gives people a chance to realize I've heard from so many of our guests who say, you know, I've traveled to all these different places. And then you have a meal with someone, they could be culturally different or religiously different. But at the end of the day, you realize we're just from a human values perspective, we're all the same. We love the same things. We care about the same things. And that's what I feel is missing now is that sense that we are all the same. And we're just everyone seems to be so polarized now, but food has that power to really bring people together. And that's what we try to do through Traveling Spoon. And um, yeah, we've got hosts everywhere from Mongolia to you know, Lebanon to, to South America. We started in Asia because that's where I'm from. And we knew back in the day that you could find a wine tour in France or a cooking class in Italy, but to go into a local's home in Vietnam or India and learn about their authentic food recipes that have been passed down through generations in their family was something you couldn't do. And that's the problem that we wanted to solve. We wanted to give people that chance to enter into a local's home and, and really find that connection. 
And so we started in India and then expanded to Thailand and Vietnam and then really grew to have hosts in all parts of Asia. And then from there moved on to South America, Central America, Europe, and then North America. Yeah, and you really solved that problem well. I mean, your company is or was, I don't know what's happening with the pandemic now, but but your company is one of the world's leader, uh, leading companies offering these types of training classes and really doing a great job. I mean, the reviews are fantastic and you, know, it, you set out to solve a problem and you did. So congratulations. Aww. Thank you, Eric. The reviews are certainly the thing that brings us the most joy is to mm. hear from our guests that, actually both from our guests and our hosts, right? So- we knew that we would be really bringing meaningful experiences to our guests because again, you're connecting with people over food. What, yeah. and, um, but from a host perspective, it's been really refreshing to see how we've really been able to change some of our hosts' lives. You know? So we always asked our hosts why they wanted to be traveling spoon hosts. And I've heard stories from so many different hosts around the world. So we have, this one host, Iti, in Calcutta, and she used to work at British Airways, and then she retired. And for her, it would bug her that when people thought about Indian food, at least when Americans would come to India and to her home and thought about Indian food, they would expect your chicken tikka masala or your butter chicken <laughs> and, and your typical food that, you know, what you associate with, um, with Indian food and Indian restaurants in the U.S. And that's because most of the restaurants in the US are Punjabi restaurants, right? And so kudos to them for starting uh, to really liven up Punjabi cuisine in people's minds. But India has a variety of cuisines and micro cuisine. So within a certain state, you'll find tons of different types of micro cuisines. And Iti's goal was to really shine a light on Bengali cuisine, which is completely different from, you know, cuisines in other parts of India. And so when they come to her home and have a meal, they're just so surprised by the variety from spices to the types of food to the techniques uh, in which they, by which they cooked. And so that for her brought her joy and she wanted to really showcase Bengali cuisine. And that's why she became a host. We have a host in Tokyo who said she grew up in Tokyo with three siblings and their whole life, they never met a single foreigner growing up. And she now has two kids of her own and she wants to expose her kids to children from around the world and be mm-hmm. exposed to new cultures. In, in Thailand and Vietnam, I know our hosts love using this as a way to, to practice their English speaking skills. And what's brought us great joy is that we've been able to make these hosts micro entrepreneurs, making money doing what they love. I remember this one back in like now, what, eight or nine years ago when I was in Varnasi in India. I was introduced to this one family. And so we vet every single host that we bring on. We go into their homes, we taste the food. Um, you know, so these are high quality culinary experiences that have been curated by us. And I, it was this older man in his 60s with his wife. And she had been cooking for his family, his, her in-laws, his parents, her friends, you know, for their whole life and raised their kids and is a wonderful cook. And now he was championing her, right? The 60-year-old traditional Indian man was like, now is my wife's time to shine. She's a phenomenal cook and I want her to make money and show off her cooking skills. And I still remember just what a warm feeling that brought me, you know, it's just so wonderful to see that, that even in your 60s and 70s, you can find something that truly brings you joy and you can make an income from it. So it's just been 
really wonderful to to be able to offer that to people. I, I love how you've you've really shown both sides of the coin here. So obviously you're touching the lives of travelers. You talked about gastrodiplomacy, getting to know people through food, through learning their family recipes and so on. And I think that's probably what what always connected you and me. We we have that same view of culinary culture. I'm the same, I'm just like you, right? Don't don't take me to the Michelin restaurants. It's money wasted. You know, take me to the street food vendor and whose language we don't speak, and we're gonna struggle through that, but that's the kind of fun. I love. But then you've also shown the other side of this is the the hosts themselves, the entrepreneurs, and the the things they've done, the the lessons they've learned, how they've grown both professionally and personally. And I don't think that when when people talk about companies, it's either, you know, you sell a product, you make money, and that's it, right? But you've actually shown two different human sides of running a business. That's that's I don't think I've ever seen that in anyone I've talked to before. That's very interesting. Thanks, Eric. It's certainly, we've been really lucky to pursue what we're passionate about and to be able to have a meaningful impact on people. It's certainly fortunate. So now I I was in a normal time, I would ask you about what challenges you've seen in your career. And I I could probably answer that for you. It's the same one (laughs) that everyone has been faced with now. It's got to be the pandemic, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's been a tougher time that we've had. Uh, certainly lots of tough times, you know, there's ups and downs and starting and running a company. But when travel, when your company is about travel and travel comes to a complete halt, <laughs> that can be tough. So yeah, I remember April of last year when pretty much revenue was zero because all of our bookings had been canceled and it was just, you know, nothing we there were no bookings coming through and I just cancellations were building up and it was it was scary and it was really scary we didn't know how long it was going to you know go on for yeah and so we quickly did you know two things that were really important to us one was as I mentioned before you know many of our hosts were dependent on traveling spoon for their income and we just felt really responsible for for them and their lack uh, and the lack of travel and how it was going to to affect them and so we started this emergency host fund to to request donations from from people and to send that to our hosts who are most at risk and we were so grateful we had you know money come in from the entire team all of us but also our investors the guests you know, other hosts who were in, in better condition, who were just so magnanimous and generous and, and kind. And so we were able to send these donations out through a grant to our, most, uh, to our hosts who are most at risk. And, you know, um, our hosts, especially in Asia, a little money goes a long way. And so for some of them, this was, you know, six months of, of savings that they could live off of. And then the second thing we did rather quickly was to to pivot to offering online cooking classes. Initially, we did this just as a way to keep our hosts really engaged because I remember talking to one of my hosts and she was like, Ashi, I love my husband, but he cannot be the only person I speak with every day. She's like, I really need to have you know, outside connection. And so I would love to, you know, to showcase my food and be able to do this uh, in a virtual way. So we 
within four weeks of the pandemic hitting, we had 25 online classes that we started. And then within seven weeks, we had a hundred plus online cooking classes. So these are private online cooking classes that we offer our guests. And you can learn anything from, you know, noodle soup in Ulaanbaatar to, to metze in, in Beirut to dosas in, in a kitchen with one of our hosts in South India. And what it did was really, it was refreshing to me. I didn't realize that it would have such an impact, but so many people would say this was the highlight of their quarantine because even though they weren't there in person, they were actually still able to connect with these hosts from a different part of the world. And they felt like they could escape from their kitchens and travel without having to get on a plane. And so in some ways it really democratized food travel, right? For a $40 experience, you can meet with a local in Addis Ababa and learn to make injera with them and, and foster that connection. And so many of our hosts were like, wow, I really want to go there now and I will meet Daniel and Addis Ababa in person the next time I go. So it actually just strengthened that connection between cultures and between countries. And it's such a great way. Now, we, we weren't able to do that before, right? I couldn't find um, an online class where I could learn to cook, I don't know, uh, lap guy in like Northern Thailand, but now I can. And so it's just the silver lining there is that it allowed us to expedite the process to really connect people to, to food and recipes around the world and do it in a virtual way that's affordable to, to many. So that became our lifeline through this entire pandemic. And we have seen travel pick up, you know, over the past uh, six to eight months, especially in the summer, it was, it was good uh, in some countries, um, but uh, it's still, I think it's here to stay. We've still got a ton of bookings for online classes. And what we also did actually was offer corporate online cooking classes. So this is like a team building event where, you know, 25, 50, 100 people in a, in a team will learn to make the same dish and, and talk about it. So that part has gone done really well as well. That's an amazing story. It's so moving. And you used a very strange expression. You said the highlight of my quarantine. And I thought, you know, can you imagine, you know, in five years, we're going to be talking about what was the highlight of your quarantine experience? <laughs> I, what a strange thing to talk about, you know? I mean, did you ever think, did the young Ashi ever think that she would be saying something like that later in her life? No, I mean, the idea that you couldn't meet people and that you couldn't leave your home for unless it was for essential things. It's so foreign, right? Like who Very would have strange. ever thought about that? It's just, it's just a different world and it's going to be different. I don't know how long it's going to take before yeah. we can return to some semblance of normalcy, whatever, you know, it's going to be a new normal for sure. Well, speaking of a younger Ashi, if you could give some advice to a younger version of yourself, what would that be? You know, I, when we're young, Eric, I feel like we're just so worried about what other people think and you know, you're, how you're perceived. And I think when I was younger, I didn't speak up as much as I should have. You know, there were things I thought about and things I, were, I was passionate about, but I really didn't say it out loud or I was just, you know, a little shyer or meeker. And that's definitely something I would tell myself now is that if you think people care so much about you, but really people have lots of things going on in their lives and <laughs> you are not, you know, the biggest concern. So like, if you really want to share something share it like be unafraid to speak up and you know and yeah you learn so much from it and i'd actually 
you had mentioned, you know, talking about, I wanted this to be something I could share with entrepreneurs around the world, especially in the food space and, you know, some of the advice and the sort of segues into, into that, which was really, when I grew up in India and, you know, people would say, oh, when you, you know, have an idea, hold it close to your heart and especially, you know, with a new company because you don't know who might take it and run with it. But what I learned while I was in business school at Berkeley was that really, if you have an idea, share it. Because the value that you get from people giving you feedback, people connecting you to, you know, others in the space uh, is far outweighs the risk that someone would take your idea and run with it. And ideas are a dime a dozen, but it's how you execute on them that really makes a difference. And so, especially when you're within a trusted community, share your idea, you know, get people's thoughts on what it could be. I, I, you know, when we started Traveling Spoon, we told pretty much everyone at school about it. And we had so many people who uh, were people we did surveys on, we got research from, professors who connected us to investors, um, you know, and there were people who also said, oh my God, I would never do this. Like eat in someone's house, why would I do that? And that was important for us to hear yeah. that that was, you know, a barrier we would need to overcome. And so one such, you know, person was like, no, I wouldn't go into someone's house and eat. And then we said, okay, what, what about if we showed you pictures about this person and like really introduced you to who they were? And, and I remember this one woman was like, oh, that's, you know, what the food looks like. And those are her kids. And yeah, absolutely. Wow, I, they're I humans too. Yeah. Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're talking 10 years ago now, right? Yeah. Where this idea was so new to people. But honestly, if we didn't share that idea, we really would not have gotten as far as we did. And um, that's definitely one of the pieces of advice I would give to young entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs everywhere is, share your idea. And it also makes you accountable. As soon as you tell someone, this is what you want to do. And as soon, then you're sort of beholden to it, you know, and then the next time you meet them, they're like, oh, where were you at with that? And so <laughs> it you makes you more accountable. For it. Yes. Exactly. And it's just when you share your passion and when people really feel that they want to help. Humans are such helpful people. And, you know, that it's what makes us who we are. We have uh, we're a species with extraordinary skills and it brings us pleasure to help other people. And so when you share your idea, um, people are there to, to help out if they can. And so that's definitely something I would, would stress. Sharing an idea is sharing like is like sharing food. I mean, we were talking about gastro diplomacy before, mm -hmm. and there's a young woman, Katiana Lejeune, who we interviewed uh, in an earlier version of our podcast. And uh, she, tell stories about world leaders coming together. And there was someone from, I think it was Belarus and someone from Ukraine, and they were at odds with each other, but then they had a, a, a bread product that was very similar in each country. And the two guys, of course, older white men, right? Um, <laughs> butting heads but then they came together and they broke down the barriers over bread because they they had similar Literally. recipes yeah. yeah oh i love that i was just a joy speaking with her and that's exactly what you know food does it really gets people to break down their barriers and sort of just relax and, and chat and and talk and that's what's so important yeah. um I, we should do that with greeks and turks <laughs> it'd be a really fun exercise <laughs> well i don't know you, you i was in turkey in in june and the way they described it was you know we're kind of like 
two sides of the same coin and the people actually don't really hate each other, but we like fighting over things like food, like who owns the yogurt, right? Or yeah. who, who owns baklava? Who <laughs> baklava, owns, exactly. Is it Turkish coffee or is it Greek coffee, right? Um, but they they actually pointed this out. They said it's more the, the leaders. It's like, it's like boys fighting over toys, you know, mm-hmm. and the leaders fighting over this and that, and the people don't care, you know, people, people yeah. just want to get along. I, and I, I've always thought that maybe it's just the world leaders that, you know, they're, they're the troublemakers, right? Every, <laughs> we're humans just want to get along and, and eat together and have fun. Absolutely. Leaders need to set that example. Yeah. Yeah. I've always said we should put the world's leaders in a hotel banquet room and ply them with plenty of food and alcohol and, <laughs> and come out a week later, we either they'd all be dead or we'd have world peace. <laughs> oh, I agree. I love that idea. Let's do it. <laughs> so what other advice do you have for entrepreneurs in our industry? Anything come to mind? Yeah, I'd say another thing is to always surround yourself with people who inspire you and are experts in their field. So starting the company, there were certainly things, you know, Steph and I had our skills for sure, but there are certain things that we weren't very good at and didn't know how to do. And we really sought out people that we admired in their fields, you know, whether it was technology or, you know, PR, things like that. And the piece of advice I would give people is, and you're trying to get advisors, don't straight up go and ask someone to be your advisor because people usually think it's a huge commitment and that, you know, they don't have as much time as they would want to, to put towards it. But instead what we did was we sought out people we truly respected in, you know, different fields and we'd reach out to them and say, would you happen to give us, you know, 20 minutes to just share our idea. And we have a few questions really specific uh, related to the field you're in. And most of the time people would say, yes, absolutely. I'm happy to help if it's, you know, 20 minutes. And so we would get their advice and then actually, you know, work on it, take it to heart, um, implement some of the ideas and then share that information back with them and say, you know, this is what I did. This is what happened. Uh, this is how we're going to move forward. And then kept that communication open. So every you know, month or so, we'd send an email saying this is you know, where we're at. And then a few months later, we'd say, OK, would you mind? You know, I have a few more questions. You have 20 minutes again to check. And then we would speak again. Now, by the time we did this three or four times, I knew we had uh, a pitch at a conference coming up. And so we needed, you know, to show that we had advisors. And so we simply asked, you know, the person, I remember our advisor at Lyft at that point. And I said, would you mind, you know, being listed as an advisor for our presentation? They're like, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, not, not a problem. So now at this point, they're already invested in you. They've given you their advice. And just being an advisor, they've already done, you know, most of the work. And so at that point, there's no friction. But if you straight up went up and said, hey, would you be an advisor? One, you don't know how valuable they might be unless you work with someone, you know, your communication, your styles of working together, the advice they offer and how relevant it is, you don't know. And then two, it's just something that people say, ah, I don't have the time for. But if you do it slowly and really communicate with people and build that trust over time, they are more likely to to become your advisor. Mm. So that's sort of my second big piece of advice that we learned over time is to, you know, surround yourself with good people and uh, communicate with them first before asking them to to be advisor. Because there are a lot of young people looking for mentors and you're right. It's almost like they they go out to collect you, you know, Mm -hmm. like, oh, I've got Ashley, she's an advisor, you know, check right and then 
and never never come back again to, right. to, to for anything. But I, I like your method because you're showing the proof. You're you're showing that they're listening, right? They're proving to you that they're listening. They're taking to heart what you're saying, and maybe they give you some other feedback, right? Or or maybe they don't agree with you 100%. You're having a dialogue at least, and and having that interactivity, which and it, you like you said, you don't know if if you if they're going to be good advisors. So it kind of goes both ways, doesn't it? Absolutely. And then the, the other thing that came to mind is, you know, if they aren't the right person or they don't have the time, you can always ask them to say, hey, is there somebody you would recommend that I speak with? Just like one person. And, you know, usually people feel badly about saying no to something. So they want to help in any other way they can. And so they're more likely to connect you with somebody else who, you know, could be great. And that's how you build your network and how you, so you know, build trust. How do you say to someone, well, you're a dad, you're not going to be a good advisor. Could you <laughs> recommend this? <laughs> no, Eric, this is if they say no to you first. <laughs> no. Well, so you're, you're moving into a new chapter of your life. What, um, what legacy do you hope to live behind if we fast forwarded, you know, 40 or 50 years from now? And Ashley is an old lady, your grandmother, and you've got all these little grandkids running around. What legacy do you hope to leave behind? Oh, I just really wish that food continues to be the way that we become a world that is at peace and that we're more communicative. And I want for more people to open up their homes to others and to open up their food stories and, and their kitchens, right? And to really showcase all of these wonderful local cooks around the world and the, the stories that they're wanting to share and that they have to share. Um, you know, the pandemic has certainly made things different, uh, where we're sadly, we're almost, you know, scared of meeting people, especially strangers. And I hope that one day, soon that changes that we can feel comfortable with strangers, because then you know, they're not strangers, they're fellow yeah. humans. And, you know, that's what I would love to leave behind is that sense that, food can bring us closer and that we continue to become closer as a species. Yeah. Well, and maybe with other species too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, it's important to note here that your company traveling spoon has been an, an enormous influence on breaking down these barriers around the world. And people have, have been able to experience that gastrodiplomacy, even if they don't call it that, even if they don't know what's happening, but they're still learning and they're still growing because of the impact of your, your efforts. And, um, and really, you know, you've taken these values to heart and, and it comes out in everything you do. So yeah, I, so. I, support, I support your legacy. I'd like to see that too, so. Thank you. I mean, I think what, what, that's exactly what we're also trying to do at the WFTA and I hope that just continues on forever because it's such a wonderful thing and a meaningful thing for people to have no matter what. Yes, I agree. Well, that's why we're doing this. Um, Ashley, I'm gonna miss you. You are such a, a beacon of bright light and joy in everything that we do here at the association. You're, you're wise, you're kind, you're smart. No, Eric. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, we're gonna miss you. you. You've left an indelible mark here in a good way on the association and uh, the podcast. And it's just been a real pleasure. I've learned things from you and uh, it's gonna be a different world going forward. But uh, oh, thank Eric, you for everything you've done. Oh, thank you for this opportunity. It has been such a delight and pleasure to meet so many people and to hear their stories and share them. And it's been just wonderful working with you. And I'm still around. We're 
going to be connected no matter what. I hope so. I hope so. Not on the podcast uh, as often, but maybe, you know, once every, every once in a while, uh, I would love to, to still be there. Plan a meal together. Yeah, exactly. I, you still, I still owe you a dinner at home. And the same here. One day when I'm in Spain, I will come knocking. <laughs> that would be nice. And you've also inspired me. I would really like to meet, what's her name, Izzy in Calcutta? Yes, Izzy. <laughs> it's, yeah, I would love to meet her because she sounds like a really inspirational, powerful personality. She is a strong, delightful, wonderful woman. And Lovely. I love what she's doing. Um, Lovely. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. Let us know. We can connect you. So, Ashi, the, the podcast is not going to be the same without you, but you're still going to be there. You're still going to be a traveling spoon. I've got your email. I've got your <laughs> Gmail. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to, to track you down whenever I need to. But uh, you really, you've left a, a very positive, indelible mark on the podcast. And also the other work that you've done here at the association, it's just been a true joy to work with you. And, and so thank you for everything. Thank you, Eric. I'm so excited to continue to really make powerful the, the meaning that food travel can have. So thank you so much for your support. It's been a sure pleasure. Thank you, Ashi. Thanks, Thanks for listening today. The Eat Well, Travel Better podcast is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association, the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. Our mission is to preserve and promote culinary cultures through hospitality and tourism. By doing so, we empower local communities and entrepreneurs with the knowledge and tools needed to reach new food lovers and gain a competitive edge. Founded in 2003, now we shepherd an annual community of 200,000 professionals in more than 150 countries. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And you can learn more about us, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our family at worldfoodtravel.org. Until next time, eat well and travel better.